wonderful experience of worship. New members, we are glad you have joined today. We are glad you are here. Welcome on behalf of all of us. Welcome. We are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. We get to look at Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, as he's revealed in the Gospel of Mark. And today we're going to do two main things. We're going to, first of all, we're going to look at Jesus, what Jesus says about Jesus. And then we're going to look at the unexpected, counterintuitive way Jesus is working in our world, his ministry. We're looking at the king and his kingdom, but not the future glorious coming kingdom, uh, the kingdom that is breaking out right here, right now among us. And along the way this morning, I'm going to make two main, two primary applications. And I want to suggest to you, if you get these, they, they both together have the potential to make 2014 a really good year for you. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4 and verse 21, where we have in this section three parables of Jesus. Jesus was largely misunderstood by the first century world, just as he is misunderstood today. The religious leaders of Israel were all about power and control. And Jesus didn't come in power. He came in humility. So they saw Jesus as a loser on the one hand and as a threat to their power on the other. In addition, the average Jew in Israel wanted relief. The average Jew wanted a political makeover, wanted relief from Roman domination and oppression. But Jesus wasn't just about politics. Jesus wasn't just about power. And as a result, he was terribly confusing and disturbing, disappointing. This is the kingdom of God? Few people in Jesus' day understood Jesus' ministry. And I would say to you, it's no different today. But here in our section... Jesus speaks right into that confusion. And he clarifies, first of all, who he is, and then the nature of his ministry. And if we get this and what comes out of it, it's life-changing. So let's look at the first parable, parable number one. This is a parable about the king. This is where we see who Jesus is. Mark chapter 1, let me get to Mark here. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 4, I'm sorry, and verse 21. And Jesus said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? And the answer is no, of course not. Instead, don't you put it on a stand, on its stand? Yes, for whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. And now it's a little confusing what's going on here. Actually, there's a debate about what Jesus means by the lamp. Uh, for example, what does the lamp refer to? You see, some people say it refers to Jesus' parables. There's lots of parables in this section of the Gospel of Mark. So when we come to the next verse, verse 22, what is hidden that is disclosed is the truth of Jesus' parables. And if you go back into the gospel, or back into Mark chapter 4, to, to verse 11, this syncs with what Jesus says about parables there in verse 11. 
Others say, no, this isn't a reference to parables. Uh, This is a reference to us, to the followers of Christ, to Jesus' disciples who will lift up Christ so that what is hidden in sin and the hardness of the human heart will be revealed in the light of the gospel. That fits with what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, that we as his followers are the light of the world. And others say, no, it's not. A lamp isn't a reference to parables. The lamp isn't a reference to us. The lamp refers to Jesus, to Jesus' kingdom, to Jesus' teaching, to, to the gospel. So what is hidden in the next verse, verse 22, is the obscurity of Jesus' first coming. Others would say, and the sinfulness and or the sinfulness of human hearts that is coming reveals. After all, Jesus will say in John chapter 8 and John chapter 9, I am the light of the world. So here the lamp refers to Jesus. I prefer that third view, that the lamp here is Jesus. But I also think that all of these are really different aspects of the same point. So like a lamp that comes into a dark room, Jesus is teaching his parables, his disciples, you and me. uh, As we lift up Christ, we dispel darkness. So what that means is that Jesus is making an incredibly strong statement here. He's saying, I'm the life-changing, life-giving light of the world. I'm the lamp. And in my light, everything that is hidden, all the secrets... All the things we're uh, trying to hide will be revealed. Now what I want at this point is I want you to see something cool. I want you to see this lamp metaphor in Old Testament Messianic prophecy. Let's go all the way back to 2 Kings chapter 8. Look at this one verse. Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised to maintain, here it is, a lamp for David and his descendants forever. A a, a vague, general prediction of the coming Messiah who would be the lamp, the light of the world, sitting on the Davidic throne. Now let's go to Psalm 132, and we see it again a little later in the Old Testament. For the Lord has chosen Zion, that is Israel, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her, that is Israel, with abundant provisions. Her poor will I satisfy with food. Here I will make a horn grow for David. Uh, Horn is an Old Testament metaphor, uh, a symbol for power, for strength. And set up, now notice, a lamp for my anointed one. So here in Mark chapter 4 and verse 21, Jesus is saying, in spite of the fact that I have come in humility and not power, and in spite of the fact that my ministry is primarily spiritual, not political, I am the prophesied, promised Old Testament lamp. I am the light of the world. And the problem is, of course, Israel first century Israel was looking for the wrong kind of light. Israel was looking for political light, military light, circumstantial light, power, uh, relief. 
And today, 2,000 years later, we're still looking for the wrong kind of light. Here, our Lord makes an extraordinary, crazy claim of supremacy, authority, and deity fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Do you bring a lamp into a room, put it under a bowl, put it under a bed? Of course not. And, and, do you see what this means? And here we come to part of the hard edge of the, the gospel. This notion that's afoot today that all religions have an equal amount of light. Just different, but equal amount of light. And well, what works for me may not work for you. And what works in Africa won't work in Asia, South America, and it'll be a little different than what works in, uh, here in the United States. But, but it's all light. It's all good. You know, whatever. What Jesus is implying is that that notion is bogus. It, it, it's wrong. This parable, if you will, this metaphor points to the uniqueness, the transcendence, the majesty, the deity of Christ who alone is the light of the world and who, by the way, who alone lights your candle, the candle of your life, so that as a follower of Christ, oh, you can go out into the dark world and light the world wherever you are. So according to this parable... Uh, to be a follower of Christ means where there are lies, we bring truth. Where there is injustice, we bring justice. Where there is hate and rejection, we bring love. Uh, where there's poverty, we bring wholeness. Where there's abandonment, uh, we bring foster care, uh, adoption. Where there's sin, we bring forgiveness and redemption in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I just this week read a report on the state of evangelism in the church in North America. And one of the conclusions was that the group least likely to do evangelism in the church in the United States is middle-aged, middle-income, middle-class Americans. Least likely. Actually, it was a surprise because many of us uh, thought it would be the millennial generation, the, the, the 20-somethings, because of their commitment to justice and, and a concern they'd be leaving evangelism behind. Not the case. Middle-aged, middle-income, middle-class Americans who are comfortable. Least likely to do evangelism. At every age, Jesus knows there's pressure to hide the light, to deny it. But I want to remind you, God has placed you into a particular family, given you a particular set or sets of friends, a particular job, you go to a particular school. You live in a particular neighborhood. You have a particular roommates. So not so you can annoy people, but so you can light the darkness. Not so you can be self-centered, self-absorbed, and waited on, but you, so you can show up early and stay late, so you can serve, uh, so you can give yourself to acts of kindness, 
so you can pray, so you can speak up, so you can uh, point people to Jesus. Jesus says in verse 21, do you, do you bring a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? No. Now that brings us to the first application. And the first application is found in the next three verses. So let's read beginning in verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Consider carefully what you hear. Now notice the repetition. Hear, hear, hear. He continued, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. In other words, how you value and weigh what you hear from Jesus, it will be measured back to you. Whoever has, whoever is open, whoever hears Jesus' word will be given more. Whoever does not have, does not listen, does not hear, even what he or she has will be taken away from them. So what is the application? Well, it's right here on the surface. The application is listen, listen, listen. Listen to the words of the light of the world. Listen to Jesus. Listen to the grace-centered, gospel-centered teaching of Jesus. Now, life in the United States today is go, go, go. But Jesus says the entryway into the kingdom, into an experience, a, a relational experience with the light of the world, with Jesus Christ, is through listening, listening, listening to him. Jesus says, consider carefully what you hear. Uh, you and I, we're prisoners of our sin, our self-centeredness, our insecurity, our fear, our addiction, our compulsions. And the divinely appointed way of escape is right here. In these three verses, it's hearing Jesus, it's listening to Jesus, it's responding, it's obeying, it's submitting to Jesus. And to emphasize the importance of this, Jesus says, consider carefully. You're in school, taking a new job, moving into new circles of influence. Man, remember, there's one light and the light is Jesus. Don't chase false lights. Listen to Jesus. Because how you measure, how you weigh, how you value God's word will de determine your capacity to receive more. More of God's word, a greater measure of God's word. Now let me encourage you to think about this in a couple different areas. Let's start with the church. Think about this in terms of your relationship with the church as we move into 2014. Now some of you sometimes wonder, why in the world do I go to church? Well, why does it matter? Now the answer is because it's an act of worship, because it's an expression of community. But here, in these verses, it's also an act of humility because you say maybe God will use that guy who's got the eye problems or one of the other guys who preach 
to say something to me right here, right now that I really, really need to hear. Maybe God is going to use them to change my life. Maybe God, before the foundation of the world, designed what he is about to say to so speak into my life that all sorts of things downstream will change. It will deliver me from the craziness of the noise all around me. So you know what? I'm going to church, man. And I'm going to church to listen. Because if Jesus is the light of the world, why are we so often so busy listening to everyone and everything else but Jesus? So we go to church. We go to church to listen. This is why here at Wheaton Bible Church, we generally teach through books of the Bible, like we're going through the Gospel of Mark. It's why Jonathan Zyman works so very hard on our devotionals to sync with what we're preaching. So you can read, you can study, you can pray in advance. So when you come on a Sunday, you are prepared to hear. Jesus says, consider carefully what you hear. This is also why when we're at home, we park ourselves at the kitchen table or at a desk or or in a chair and we open our Bibles and we read our Bibles and we study God's Word. Not because we're on a point system or it's some sort of merit thing or because, you know, we got to do it and we just, you know, it's what our grandparents did. No, no, no. It's because we know we need light. And we need to hear the words of light and life. It's why we read books. It's why we study the Bible with others and why if you haven't ever plugged into our women's ministry or our men's ministries, you saw in the video a couple minutes ago, man, I want to encourage you to take that step this year, 2014. It's why we have people in our lives that hold us accountable, why we ask questions. It's why we take God's Word seriously. To listen is to be a student of God's Word. It is to park ourselves under God's Word. Listen. 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 I am the light of the world. And we listen in order to transform, not to just gather information. It's also why we get our families together, our kids together around God's Word, why we study the Bible with our children, maybe after dinner or as we're putting them to bed. One of the best things I was told just recently over the holidays came from my a uh, 19-year-old son who's a freshman in college at a secular university. He had a great semester. And boy, in a secular context, is he standing up for Jesus Christ. I could not script it better as a parent. I could not script it better as a Christ follower. And so one day I wanted to unpack this with Ryan, and I said, hey, Ryan, what are some of the things that led in 
to this, and he mentioned a couple of things, and then he said to me, well, Dad, uh, a lot of it had to do with the study you and I did when uh, I was in high school on the Psalms. And I sort of laughed to myself because we didn't study the Psalms. We studied Proverbs. (laughs) But he was close. (laughs) So I didn't say anything. I just said, oh, man, that's great. Great influence. Uh, But think about it. A father studying God's word with his son. A couple years downstream leads him to being liked in a secular university context. Listen, listen, listen. Because we believe Jesus is the light of the world, in our crazy busyness, we do not, now follow me, we do not let go of the right things. We do not let go of church. Uh, We do not let go of Bible study. We do not let go of our devotional time. We do not let go of uh, studying God's word as a family or or praying together. Now, others may be semi-listening. Others may be semi-obedient. Others may be semi-churched. Others may be semi-committed or semi-Christians. But we are all in. We listen, we listen, we listen. And that's what humility looks like in responding to the light that has come into the world. So I want to invite you on the front end of this year with all the potential, all the promise that's ahead to give yourself to this one spiritual discipline of listening to God's word, being a student of God's word, parking yourself underneath and before God's word, and then watch out and look and see what God does in your life. Now let's go on. Let's move from Jesus to his ministry, from the king to the kingdom. And we're going to look at two more parables, short parables that are kingdom parables. Now the kingdom refers to the reign of God. The reign of God in our lives, the reign of God in culture, the reign of God God in the world. And in the New Testament, there's a a present aspect of the kingdom of God, and then there's certainly the future, glorious aspect of the kingdom of God. And the church is a part of the kingdom, but the kingdom is a broader concept. It refers to the reign of God. So let's read these two short, very interesting kingdom parables. Verse 26, he also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scattered seed on the ground, night and day, whenever, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Again he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. 
Now, I'm taking these two together because they really address the same issue. Jesus here, demonstrating his infinite wisdom, is speaking to how it is that he could be bringing in the kingdom of God when there's so precious little to show for it. And he knows that his contemporaries are really confused by that. They're scandalized by it. I mean, Jesus has got a ragtag group of disciples, no-name disciples at that. And he's saying the kingdom of God is here, it's at hand. And first century Israel is saying, run that by me again, where? Where's the power and the glory of the kingdom? Uh, don't see it, Jesus. I mean, stars aren't falling, nations aren't being conquered. Uh, Israel's leaders, they're not, they're not buying in. Roman occupation, not, not changing. 2,000 years later, we wrestle with the exactly the same thing. I mean, we look around, we see injustice, war, suffering, chaos, poverty, disease, children starving, uh, country after country in, 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 in turmoil. We say, where's the kingdom Jesus, really? I don't think so. Or what happens often at a more personal level, you may be the only follower of Christ in your family. You may have been completely and totally alone in your faith over the holidays, over Christmas. You may be the only follower of Christ in your job or in your neighborhood or in your school. And there's all sorts of pressure. And, and you just say, well, where's everybody else? Where's Jesus? Or you may be going through a difficult time financially or, or, or relationally, and, and you're praying, but God isn't responding. And you feel stuck. And, and so you rightfully ask the question, where is the kingdom of God in this? Not seeing it. Not seeing it. Now, Jesus knew this was an issue for Israel. So in these two parables, Jesus says, the present kingdom, the present reign of God among us that is breaking out among us is not what you would expect. Not what you'd expect. And so the first parable that begins in verse 26, this parable of uh, the growing seed, uh, uh, Jesus speaks to the fact that, well, hey, we would expect less sin and more righteousness. We would expect more peace, less injustice, more justice. We would expect the overfall of evil. You know, we would, I'm a follower of Christ now, really expect life to be a little easier, a little less problematic. But Jesus says, no. Uh, the kingdom of God is like crops that grow from a seed. And that means you may not see anything for a long time. And it may seem really slow and insignificant, unimpressive. But God is at work. God is at work. Now I want you to notice the first three words of verse 28. Let's put this parable back up, the verses back up. They're right in the middle. The first three words right in the middle all by itself. Those words are an English translation of one Greek word, the Greek word automate. That Greek word is the word we get our English word automatic from. 
all by itself. Automatic. In other words, what Jesus is saying in this parable is the growth of the kingdom of God is not a human thing. It's not an appearance thing. It's not pomp and circumstance. It's not rock stars. It's not movie stars. It's not on and on the stars. It's not a human thing. It's a divine thing. It's automate. It's something God does. And we don't understand it, and we go to sleep on it, and we can't quite see it. But Jesus is saying God brings the growth in his way, in his time. And so, for example, what you and I today struggle with is, man, we hear about war in Syria. We hear about all the trouble in Sudan, just to mention two places. And we think, where's God? But what we never hear about is the people that God is slowly and quietly drawing to himself in Syria. Sudan. I just talked to a Sudanese refugee right after the last service who was updating me on what's going on. Uh, We don't see that. And we tend to forget that Jesus Christ has his people. Jesus Christ is doing his thing. God is growing, building the kingdom. So obstacles in our life, disappointment in your life, Jesus is saying, uh, don't be stuck based on circumstances or appearances. You may never ever see how God uses you to influence your nephew or your neighbor or your classmate or your roommate. But God is using you as you stand up for Jesus Christ. Because according to the parable, God is at work, everything is on schedule, and he is in control in spite of seemingly small, insignificant growth. And the kingdom, well, the kingdom of God is happening, automate, all by itself. Because it's God's kingdom, and God gives the growth. Now let's go on to the third parable, this parable of the mustard seed that begins in verse 30, 30, 31, 32. Here Jesus compares the present kingdom activity of God to a tiny, bitty, one of the smallest of seeds, the mustard seed, and says what appears to be small and appears to be insignificant, what appears to be unimpressive, like Jesus' first century ministry, will you will yield incredibly huge results you see the jews didn't need to know that the kingdom of god was coming they believed that they needed to know that it was present right here right now in jesus and that's precisely jesus point in this incredible peril parable he says don't be deceived by appearances don't be deceived by what seems to be so feeble, so small. This ragtag group of disciples. Watch out. So the application coming out of the first parable is we need to listen, listen, listen. Here the application coming out of these two parables is we need to believe, believe, believe. Listen and believe. 
and we believe in spite of appearances to the contrary. Jesus Christ is saying, never limit God to what you see. To your mind. To your experience. God is at work behind the scenes. God is at work under the scenes. Faith is the assurance of things uh, hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I love the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's get these verses up. We don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that fars outweigh them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. And I can promise you, to the extent in 2014, you fix your eyes on what you see, you're going to make really bad decisions. And to the extent you do the converse, the opposite, and fix your eyes on what you don't see, you're going to be amazed at what God is going to do in you and through you. So in the Old Testament, we have a great illustration of this with Elisha and his servant. They are in the city of Dothan. The enemy armies are amassing, and Elisha's servant is panicking. Elisha, knowing this, prays and asks God to open the servant's eyes. The servant's eyes are opened by God, and suddenly he sees above and beyond the enemy armies, the angelic heavenly armies. And that's Jesus' point or takeaway in these two parables. Things may appear to you to be overwhelming or futile or really bad, but there is an angelic host just on the other side of sight. God is building this church, and faith is the conviction of things not seen. Be believing, believing, believing. And believing then gives birth to confidence and hope. And these two parables, if they're anything, are parables of hope. Because you are not bound. You are not limited by your circumstances. You are not bound. You are not limited by what you see. You are not bound, limited by, because you live in a closed system. We do not live in a closed system. God exists and God is at work. And so how do we respond? What, what, is the, what is the point of these parables in terms of how we should respond? Let me give you one of my favorite Old Testament illustrations of this. I shared this with our staff at our staff lunch on Tuesday. Look at these words from Habakkuk. I love these words at the end of the book of Habakkuk. Though the fig tree does not bud, though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, there is no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls. And here we have this crazy counterintuitive response. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on to the heights. Now let's go back to verse 17. Now the context here is hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene. So this is hundreds of years before our parable. Israel is in the process of being wiped out because of 
her unbelief. So what Habakkuk is describing is total uh, desolation, national desolation. I mean, think the Allstate commercial, total mayhem. So what does he say? He says, look at the words, no grapes, no food, no sheep, no cattle. That's the circumstances. That's what he sees. That's the reality, inescapable reality. But look at his response in verse 18. I will rejoice in the Lord. He doesn't say, you know, I'm going to hang in there and, yeah, you know, that man, this is really tough. Uh, he says, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Now, how do you move from that kind of reality to that kind of response? What's the reason? Now let's go to the next verse, verse 19. Because he knows that the sovereign Lord is his strength. He gets grace. The sovereign Lord is my strength is a statement of grace. I know God's going to get me through. God's going to enable me uh, to, to thrive. God's going to get me on the heights. As a matter of fact, he's going to make my feet like the feet of a deer. Because Habakkuk wasn't fixed on what he saw. He was fixed on God's grace. The sovereign Lord is my strength. Now in our two parables, Jesus is talking about his kingdom, his ministry among us. And he's addressing this question, well, why don't we see more? Why is it so difficult? And on and on. And what he is saying and his point is, be like Habakkuk. Believe. And because you believe, be confident and, and joyful. So as we enter this new year, with all that's ahead, all the opportunities you are going to have to influence and touch people, man, I want to encourage you to hear the parables. I want to encourage you to listen, listen, listen. And to believe, believe, believe. Because to the extent we listen, we'll believe. And to the extent we believe, we'll listen. Now let's pray. Father, would you give us the grace to hear your word? I, I would pray that this would not be an ordinary year for us. I pray that it would be extraordinary because we are taking you at your word. Give us that grace. Amen. Would you stand with me for our benediction? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And in all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Our prayer team will be down in front. They would love to pray with you.